Hi, everyone. This is Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs. And as always, where we push the limits of our understanding. We are Joe Landry and Nori Olford here with you again for another intriguing, fascinating, and thought-provoking episode where we delve into the mysterious topics of extraterrestrials and the paranormal. So first off, welcome and thank you all for joining us. As always, we're really glad to have you here with us. So, hey, Lori, welcome back to you as well after having a, a nice cruise getaway. I, I know my wife and I went on a couple of cruises a few years ago, and and they're just unbelievable. I, I mean, the sheer size of those ships and all the hundreds of amenities and, and luxuries, all the fantastic food and so much of it, like it's limitless. But it's, you know, it's hard to believe we've been away from the show for three weeks now. That's good to be back. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm doing well, Joe. Uh, yeah, it's it's good to be back. And as always, we we want to thank uh, everyone for downloading and listening to the show. Uh, but you're right; it uh, does seem like it has been quite some time. Um, of course, like you said, my wife and I went on a cruise um, along the California and Mexico cruises or coasts, coasts, and uh, we had a real good time with that. Really nice. No, I think it's just absolutely remarkable they can get something like that to float on the ocean, you know, something as large and as fully loaded uh, with elegant restaurants and lounges and casinos and theaters and spas, not to mention the staterooms that you you stay in. Uh, Those are always lavish as well. And they're fabulous. Um, The fact that something so big can float and go so far out to sea is is just an amazing thing to think about. But uh, well, good. I'm glad you guys had a nice time. Yeah, yeah, it's a great time, sir. I mean, we celebrated our 28th wedding anniversary, so. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you mentioned the uh, the size of the cruise ships, and now it's mind-boggling that something so big and sophisticated can be, you know, constructed and then put out into the water like that to make steel and iron, mind you, <laughs> float like a cork. And uh, and that made me wonder about the huge statues on uh, Easter Island, which happens to be our topic for today. <laughs> That's a pretty clever lead-in, Laurie. Thank you. Thank uh, you. <laughs> very impressive. But I, I hope you weren't pondering the subject of our podcast while spending time on your cruise. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I uh, I certainly took my mind off all work, enough to relax and uh, enjoy a pleasant vacation with my lovely wife. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. So, yes, when when we all hear Easter Island, I'm sure the first image that comes to mind is those monolithic head statues that we've all seen in pictures, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Just like how the the name Egypt conjures up the thoughts of the pyramids. Um, So, too, does the name Easter Island make everyone think about the anthropomorphic head statues that are known by their native word, uh, Moai. Right. And these Moai, which are colossal megaliths, number at, what, 926 on the island with 387 of them uh, that are still incomplete and not fully removed from their rock quarries. Um, They're constructed of single-shaped stones carved into the form of human faces and torsos and uh, on average weigh 15 tons and are about 13 feet tall. The largest one is just under 33 feet and is 85 tons. Now, there is one that is just shy of 70 feet and weighs an estimated 165 tons or you know, 330,000 pounds, but it is one of the unfinished statues. Now, if, if it was completed, it would be 73% of the weight of the Statue of Liberty, which is 450,000 pounds. 
So the heaviest one that is in place is 170,000 pounds. Uh, to put that into perspective, a two-story house is about 300,000 pounds. The space shuttles uh, are each about 220,000 pounds, and a locomotive engine is about 400,000 pounds. Yet these native people of Easter Island moved these massive statues around without the use of anything other than trees, ropes, and stone tools. Wow. Yeah, yep. uh, it's not exactly known how this was done. Uh, some researchers, such as uh, Charles Love, uh, Pavel Pavel, and Thor Heiderdahl, assumed that ropes were used to pull them across the ground uh, upon logs chopped down from trees and, and had them rolled from one point to another with up to 1,500 men needed to do that. Actually, in National Geographic magazine, uh, dated July 2012, it was explained that the statues could have been uh, walked uh, or wobbled, at least, um, using only 50 to 100 men to pull on ropes to tilt the statue back and forth uh, and make it rock forward, you know, bit by bit and make it uh, make it move across the ground. Right. Well, they actually demonstrated this by reenacting the methods that would uh, best enable the Moai to be moved. But there was a discrepancy. And that is when they attempted to roll them, they were using wood that was different from that of the island trees. Plus the statue uh, they moved was lighter, uh, maybe up to nine tons and was rolled over flat ground. With this, they found that the wood rollers would jam and that the stone would chip and crack during movement. And so it seems that most archaeologists support the theory uh, from all this evidence in its totality uh, that is consistent with an upright transportation of the statues. It seems so. Now, just like with the construction of the Giza pyramids, we find ourselves baffled by, by, the, by how these feats were accomplished without the use of modern-day heavy equipment. Now, that, of course, leaves open the possibility that ancient people knew more about advanced engineering than we're led to believe. And based on the ancient astronaut theory, they had learned about such concepts from extraterrestrial sources true and as far as who did the work of putting together all the pyramids uh, the temples and the monuments we believe it was human ancient humans who did that but did they do it based on knowledge that was acquired from someone else someone far more technologically sophisticated who maybe taught them the processes and techniques that had somehow become lost over millennia like lost secrets so could the Easter Island Moai have been made using special complex applications of engineering principles that we to this day still don't know about? And were they built as a tribute to those advanced beings who, who taught them how to do this? Exactly. And these beings who possess such knowledge so as to make the Moai could very likely be extraterrestrials coming from another world. And to the people of antiquity, those beings would be called gods. Now, some of the Moai are stood up on large flat platforms of volcanic rock, and others are on the soft, loamy uh, soil of the island and over time have sunk into the ground up to their heads. And the belief is that they are there to commemorate the ancestral chiefs who descended from the gods just before arriving on the island over a thousand years ago. Yeah, the natives, known as the uh, Rupanui, uh, claim that their ancestors arrived from other Polynesian islands from a time as early as 300 A.D. to as late as 1200 A.D. And according to Terry Hunt in his 2006 article in the journal American Scientist titled Rethinking the Fall of Easter Island, 
The statues are probably hewn, sculpted, and moved, and put into place closer to the time of 1200 A.D. Now, like you said, Laurie, 387 of them are still in their quarries, um, and the 926 that are completed, uh, about three-quarters of them were not moved uh, or to supposed designations, but instead were left in place um, as movers seem to abandon the effort to move them from the quarries to their designated spots. So there is evidence of a considerable amount of labor being put into the whole project. Uh, the rock of which they are made is called tough. It's a porous volcanic rock, much like basalt. Um, but fortunately, it's fairly easy to chisel and carve, which I suppose uh, helped the workers in their task. But considering that they only had primitive tools, none that were made of iron, uh, this would have still been a, a lot of strenuous work. That leaves us with the uh, question of why the Rupanui people uh, would put so much time and work into es- excavating the uh, the rock and sculpting the, the features and transporting the statues. Uh, this is perplexing. Just like with the construction of the pyramids of Egypt and Central America, uh, we have people making these massive monuments with stones weighing not hundreds of pounds, but uh, often hundreds of tons, which is hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, how do they accomplish that with only manual labor and what compels them to do it in the first place, you know, for large gangs of workers to break their backs, moving such heavy materials into place. I know really. Uh, And they didn't just slap something together to honor their ancestors and their gods. Uh, These things, these megaliths and monoliths aren't just the size of say an ordinary house. Uh, They reach the sky. Like you said, Laurie, the largest Moai is over 30 feet tall and that's pretty big. And of course, the pyramids are anywhere from 100 to 300 feet in height. And, and you know, even the uh, medieval castles and uh, cathedrals uh, stand at hundreds of feet. So, yeah, what possessed them back then to start making buildings and monuments of that size? Uh, you know, today, in our modern age, it's very common to have massive structures built, you know, skyscrapers, bridges, dams, and we see them all over the world. But in ancient times, most things weren't constructed being much taller than our living room ceilings. Anything taller than, say, 20 to 30 feet would have been considered as being pretty big. So when the Rupanui created the Moai statues and moved them into place, they were definitely serious in making a statement about their purpose and about making sure that they endure the ravages of time. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Right. And clearly, they intended for these things to last for an eternity. That's why people in the past built things like the pyramids, Stonehenge, um, the Great Wall of China, the Tower of Babel, um, the way that they did. Um, They wanted for them to last forever. And of course, we know that they did uh, succeed in those endeavors, well, except for the Tower of Babel. The, the gods destroyed that human accomplishment, right? <laughs> uh, how dare you, puny humans? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I think with uh, Easter Island, what makes the Moai construction so 
remarkable is that the place is just so completely isolated from anywhere else. All the materials, tools, designs, and labor came right from that tiny island. Uh, when you look on a globe and uh, and see where Easter Island is at, or today's term, I guess the map quest or whatever, Google Earth, <laughs> uh, you have to wonder how anyone was able to even find it, let alone settle on it and develop a thriving society that went as far as to take on a megalithic statue project. I mean, when you consider how many thousands of miles of deep ocean separate all of the islands of the uh, Nisaeus, you know, like uh, what Polynesia, uh, Micronesia, uh, what else? Um, Melanesia, Indonesia, the Nisias. Yeah. Yeah. Then, yeah. So, right. Um, when you consider the tremendous sailing distances between all of them, it's amazing that people were able to, to reach them at all and also maintain a cultural connection with the other islands. I mean, just look at Hawaii. I mean, Hawaii is what, 1,700 miles from the mainland. And it's pretty far out there. It's 2,000 miles from the Solomon Islands and another 3,000 miles from Tahiti. Then there's like 4,000 miles from Samoa. So Easter Island is even further from all of them. So these are incredibly long distances over water nonetheless. For people to be able to maintain lines of communication, convey information, and, and manage these uh, logistics, the Pacific Ocean is just absolutely huge. Yeah, and of course, there are plenty of very small islands out there that are and always have been uninhabited. According to Britannica.com, out of the 25,000 Pacific islands, about 35% of them are uninhabited. So as it was, Easter Island was discovered by Europeans on April 5th, uh, 1722, which for that year was Easter Sunday, and hence the name Easter Island was coined to it. Uh, it was Dutch explorer Jacob Rogovan. Uh, on a voyage to Australia who came upon it and, of course, eventually you know, went back home to tell the stories about the mysterious place with its hundreds of Moai statues. Uh, this must have been tantalizing for people in Europe to hear about as uh, Easter Island, as you said, is possibly in the remotest spot on Earth. It is situated at a point in the South Pacific that is over you know, 2,000 miles from anything. Um, it's almost right smack on the Tropic of Capricorn which is way down there at uh, 23.5 degrees south latitude. So to find out that such large monolithic statues could have been built by people who are so far removed from others, isolated by thousands of miles of deep ocean, uh, that must have been an intriguing enigma to, for them to ponder. And indeed, uh, tales began to be told about how Easter Island could possibly be a remnant of the mythical lost continent of Mu. Yeah, Um I'm sure imaginations went wild with that. Um, now, it was annexed by Chile in 1888 and is still to this day a territory of that country and given the official name Isla de Pasca, which means Easter Island in Spanish. From what is reported by Scott Corrales on UFOdigest.com, and this one's dated uh, February 20th, 2013, the Chilean Air Force claims that there is a lot of UFO activity that has been observed near it from as far back as the 1950s. So like many other spots on the planet, Easter Island, with its inherent Moai statue mystery, is one that also has unidentified aerial phenomena associated with it. And as we've discussed many times before, there is a close correlation that is found in the mythological traditions of the past 
with stories of gods and miracles, with the appearance of UFOs seen in the sky. Uh, we've even shown how it is depicted in the artwork of many different cultures, even that of Christianity. Yeah, and we find an interesting theme in the Rupa Nui uh, petroglyphs on Easter Island. Now, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, so now after Rogavan, after his expedition, and there wasn't a whole lot of European contact with the island until in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, in 1770, the Spanish, led by Felipe González de Ajedo, um, briefly touched down there. And then in 1774, the famous British explorer, Captain James Cook, arrived. And French Admiral uh, Jean-Francois de Galoupe uh, made it there in 1786. And, and they all went back and told the story of the amazing Moais, the great idols all over the island. So when visitors began frequenting Easter Island around 1860, they found the Rupanui to be in some turmoil, uh, afflicted with disease, deforestation, warfare, and slave trade. And indeed, by the time many of the Moai had been, by that time, uh, many of the Moai statues have been toppled as a result of the conflicts among the island clans. Um, and that is said to have been gone on for a thousand, for, I'm sorry, that is said to have gone on for uh, hundreds of years. Um, and the population had decreased uh, to less than a thousand people by the middle of the 19th century. And you know, the uh, the Eastern Island Moai features are are also unique. Um, they are chiseled with a long slope for the nose, a strong brow ridges. They have deep eyes, and they have chins that you know protrude from the the jaw. Uh, some of them even have what appears to be a red stone on top, which which may be indication of a hit piece of some kind. Now, once the Moai were sculpted, it is believed that they could have been uh, transported using those wood rollers. But apparently at one time, the island was heavily forested. But what's really interesting is that um, of some of the, uh, the Moai, um, they're, they're wearing those uh, red hats or a, some type of red headdress of, of some sort. Uh, this is somewhat r reminiscent to how giants were said in some folklore to be red-haired or you know, fiery-haired. Uh, uh, even with the U.S. military story of the Kandahar giant, uh, which we brought up about a year ago now, uh, supposedly had intensely red hair. Um, are these Moai representing a similar kind of giant? So now that brings us to the petroglyphs uh, that you mentioned earlier found throughout the island some of them on the walls of caves and some of them on rocks. Now, these petroglyphs are of birdmen who are depicted with reddish colored hair on the top of their heads, and they pertain to the religious beliefs of the Rupa Nui. Um, in, in their theology, there is uh, the god, uh, I think you pronounce it, Mecca Mecca, who is the creator of the world, and under him is the birdman god Awana, uh, or Awao, and his wife Hoa the fertility goddess. So uh, this echoes the same theme in Sumerian mythology with the chief deity who oversees subordinate gods and their symbolic representations are similar to what is found mentioned about the Anunnaki. Uh, recall that Inki is sometimes depicted as a fish or as a serpent uh, or as a, a goat, uh, also sometimes being part man, a bearded man and part animal, also sometimes shown as a flying beast. 
Yeah, like you said, uh, the same schemas and archetypes keep popping up in, in mythology. Uh, we talk about it with the Dogon tribe of Mali and their cult of water deities, and the Nomos, from the Cirrus star system, and, and how there were strong similarities with the Egyptian and Babylonian traditions, um, also with the Mayan religion. And we find the in the Mayan religion, we, we have uh, Kukla Khan, uh, that, that legend, the feathered serpent, who was associated with the planet Venus. The same with the Aztec version of Quetzalcoatl. And from these, we see the parallelism to the Enki symbolism. Um, even the Aborigines of Australia, they speak about the children of the stars. The Native Americans' beliefs uh, incorporate the folklore of star people. So while each culture is certainly unique in the preservation of their mythologies, they all seem to bear the mark of the same distinct memories, ones formed in the human psyche far back in prehistoric times. Uh, and these stories uh, have been preserved, and, and is something we continually define, the way these stories are preserved. Uh, they have these connotations um, pretty much everywhere of an extraterrestrial encounter. Right. And it's not so much that all of these oral traditions are derived from those of ancient Sumerians and have morphed into their own individual forms. It's more like the encounters uh, with the extra extraterrestrial beings of the distant past have left impressions upon uh, Neolithic humans that were told from one generation to the next. As the Homo sapiens species uh, migrated to different parts of the world, the stories took on versions that were unique to a particular group uh, to eventually become individual religions. Uh, yet, you know, they all still retain the same central idea, which is that we are, are here because of the powerful gods out there. Now, that is what is encompassed by um, uh, Zechariah Sitchin, uh, Eric Von Danigan, and even uh, Graham Hancock in the, you know, the formulation of their theories. Exactly. And, and these mythological elements found throughout the cultures of the world are fairly consistent in how they are preserved and passed down, whether it is through oral or written tradition. Uh, like in the case with the Rupanui, we have an oral history, uh, even though there is a proto-Polynesian script called Rongorongo that is found on some relics around the island. Um, its meaning has become obscured. Uh, much like that of Egyptian hieroglyphics and Celtic runes. Uh, the people who were literate in the language were the elite royal and priestly classes, and unfortunately their knowledge um, was lost to time and also lost to warfare and calamity, and there was really no one left to preserve the knowledge of how to uh, translate the language and translate the script. Well, I guess if a Rosetta Stone for Rango Rango uh, text is ever discovered, then archaeologists might be able to crack the code just like how they did with, uh, with say, the uh, hieroglyphics. Yeah, perhaps so. As of now, it has not been successfully deciphered. But what is known through the oral accounts, um, Aleska Vosavak says in an article with uh, ancientorigins.com, uh, dated February 6, 2020, that there are three distinct periods in the history of the Rupanui. Uh, the first is that of the Moai cult, and that is the time when the statues would have been built in, and, and roughly represents the first 500 or so years of the habitation of the island. Uh, the second one is that of the Birdman cult, 
And that begins in the 16th century. And anthropologists see this as a shift in the social organization of the people. Uh, why this change in their beliefs to emphasize the bird man at this particular point in time is, is uncertain, as there are no written records. But it could have had to do with uh, new ruling dynasties coming into power. Now, the third period is that of colonization and Christianization in the 19th century, in which the birdman rituals and competitions called the uh, Tengata Manu, uh, they were put to an end uh, because they were pagan and the missionaries were trying to convert the people to uh, Catholicism. Uh, so the emergence of this birdman cult seems to have been like a religious revival among the Rupanui, albeit a pagan uh, revival, uh, but it was one that brought about a new and revitalized spiritualization in the ancient belief of the sky gods. Yeah, and Joe, if you recall from our episode on ancient spaceports about, uh, it's been a year ago now, uh, that there is a strong connection between sacred places and sightings of aerial phenomena. And it's been suggested by some ufologists that these places on Earth happen to lie on known flight paths for alien spacecraft. We've also pointed out that many um, of that many of those places fall on or near the 33rd parallel. So in Peru, we have the famous Nazca lines, which are those huge geoglyphs, mostly in the shape of animals that are only visible on the ground from being up at a high altitude, really only visible from an airplane. Um, there are also the temple sites of, of uh, Machu Picchu and uh, Pumapunku, a few hundred miles away from there. And we have to wonder if, if all of these were made to commemorate those uh, same sky gods that are commemorated by the Birdman cult of uh, Easter Island. Right. And we alluded to how many of these sacred locations and monuments seem to align in, in a way that makes for good visual reference points for flight. Uh, the hypothesis behind this is that many of these significant religious and mythological places, such as Mount Olympus, uh, the Giza pyramids, the Sinai Peninsula, uh, Lake Titicaca, etc., are, are within you know supposed landing zones for extraterrestrials, or at least within high traffic corridors by which their spacecraft would travel to and from the Earth. So since the ancients would be likely to encounter aliens in these places, they develop over time into being affiliated stories of gods, angels, demons, and other supernatural entities, and thus become spiritually or religiously important. Right, and in the case with the geography of South America, we see that there are some incredibly vivid reference points. You know, there's the Atacama Desert in Chile, uh, the Andes Mountains Range in Peru and Bolivia, and from space, these are in line of sight with Easter Island. And also, as you indicated, Lori, you know, the temples of Machu Picchu and Pumapunco are in this vicinity as well, as is uh, Tiwanaku, which is right next to Lake Titicaca. Uh, based on the Inca mythology, this is where the creator god uh, Viacocha came from after the Great Flood to create all of humanity. So these are all points in the Southern Hemisphere that form a, a region of religious significance to the indigenous people much in the same way that we find in the Middle East with the lands of the Bible. And just as those places in the lands of the Bible tie into one another as being possible locations for shared extraterrestrial encounters, so too could uh, it be that the cultures of Mesoamerica are connected with the mythical beliefs of the Rupanui or uh, Nui uh, by a shared tradition of experiences with alien contacts. Now, Marcus Loth, 
gives an interesting explanation in his article on UFO Insight or UFOinsight.com, which was dated February 24th of 2016, in which he refers to the Stephen Stone uh, to the Seven Stone Giants um, on Easter Island. These stand apart uh, on uh, Ahuka Kivi and are said to represent the seven explorers who uh, first settled the island. And he illustrates the symbolic significance of the number seven to the theme of creation. Of course, now we see this uh, most prominently in the uh, in the biblical account in which God takes seven days to complete his creation. Um, so when the Rupanui uh, did not leave a written record of their history, they did leave uh, evidence of it. And, and that would be in the placement of the uh, Moai. Yeah, and that evidence is also suggested in, in constituency of the oral tradition. For example, the stories that the divine and miraculous powers were used to make the statues walk. Uh, the legend goes that the earliest king on the island, uh, Tuku Inu, uh, had moved them with the help of the god Makamaki. And this is what uh, has been told and retold and passed on from generation to generation by the Rupanui people. Uh, there is no written record of the construction of the Moai, but the oral history attributes all the work to their gods, uh, with them helping their ancestors, perhaps by teaching them the methods on, on chiseling, uh, sculpting, and transporting the statues that are made of one large piece of rock. And, and there may be some truth to that, uh, perhaps even by teaching them about different types of energy or force fields that could be used to shape and move large rocks, a technology from out of this world. And, you know, if if you look up uh, pictures that were made of this god, uh, Makamaki, uh, you see he looks like an alien gray or maybe even like a reptilian. The uh, petroglyphs are quite evident of it, I think. Uh, but, you know, check it out on our uh, Facebook page. Uh, I'll load it, uh, upload it there and uh, see for yourselves. Um, so, but there's an article on uh, imaginarepanui.com, uh, and it tells the story of Father Sebastian Inlet or Englert, uh, who was a Franciscan uh, friar and missionary on Easter Island. Uh, he was from Germany, but he spent 30 years of his life there until he died in 1969. During that time, he claimed to have learned about the creation myth of the creation uh, of the uh, Rupanui, or uh, sorry, Rupanui, and noticed some amazing similarities to the Judeo-Christian account. According to his testimony, he was told things by the locals that sound similar to the book of Genesis, like uh, Makamaki was alone. Uh, there was, uh, of course, this was not good. Um, he looked and saw his shadow in the water, and he greeted it by saying, "Hail, young man! How beautiful you are! Similar to me." Uh, so this, you know, sounds just like the phrase in our image and likeness to a point. Um, also, after some time, he decided to create man to be like him, and have a voice and speak like him. Now, after mistakes were done, Makamaki fertilized the clay, and man was born from it. Now, Makamaki saw that this turned out well. This, of course, sounds much like the verse, and the Lord saw that it was good. And then he saw man was still alone. Uh, he made him sleep, and he fertilized his ribs on the left side. Hence, the woman was born. So this is just like the passage with uh, the creation of Adam and Eve. Right. And critics of Father Sebastian's testimony say that these apparent similarities in verbiage are a result of the Rupanui beliefs having been influenced 
by the decades of Christian evangelization on the island. Now, to be fair, this could indeed be the case, especially since there is no literary tradition in existence and there is no reliable way to verify what is part of the native canon and, and what isn't. Uh, however, there is a little, this is a little backwards to what historians and cultural anthropologists find when a pagan group is converted to Christianity. Yeah, it is usually the pagan elements that are integrated into the faith doctrines practiced by the local diocese, not the uh, Christian elements that are morphed into the old pagan narrative. We know that the, the church simply wouldn't tolerate that. <laughs> right. And, you know, the, the vision of Our Lady of Guadalupe is a good example of this. Uh, in 1531, Juan Diego saw an apparition of the Virgin Mary. Now, as uh, he was a converted Christian, he went straight to the archbishop to tell him of the vision. And in this story, the woman who is the Virgin Mary speaks to Juan Diego in his native language, which is Natola. Um, and that's the language of the, the Aztecs. Uh, and she also was said to be wearing the royal clothing of the Aztecs. So here, the, the local cultural aspects are synthesized with the doctrines of Catholicism, not the other way around. Right. And we also know that uh, Moai and Birdman cults existed long before the arrival of the missionaries, which, as you said, wasn't until the 19th century. And we know that belief in um, uh, Makamaki as a supreme god and creator had been around for a very long time, Was and that it was uh, deeply embedded in the collective memory of the Rupanui. Um, while Christian teachings may have modified a lot of their religious beliefs, it's likely to have completely transformed it from uh, its original roots. So, um, which, which had the greater influence? What, was it Christianity or was it the oral tradition passed down from the first king being taught, taught it by his God, Makamaki, or whoever it may be? Right. We see when, uh, you know, a group of people are converted to Christianity, even so the, the pagan tradition is uh, kind of, Preserved. I mean, they may not practice it, but they still tell the story, uh, and it doesn't usually get altered um, differently. Um, they try to, like you see, like in, in these Polynesian islands, um, they may be, most of them are Christian, but they still tell stories of their pagan past, and those stories are preserved um, separate from the, their, their Christian practice of the time. Um, so it, it seems that religion follows a lot of parallelism, right? Um, we see that they all hold one shape or another in common with the belief in a patriarchal sky god, a creation myth, a great cataclysm, usually a flood sometime in the past, uh, a covenant between humans and that sky god, uh, a process of worship and redemption, and an afterlife destiny, all with, within the cosmological framework that fully integrates the omnipotence of that sky god. So it seems that the Rupanui and their theology centered on Makamaki are following the same epic stories that are found everywhere else in the world. Yeah, they all have the same origin in common uh, way back in the time before time. A psychological impression left upon the prehistoric minds of Stone Age people from the encounters with alien beings and their advanced technology. <laughs> and it all comes from the same source, at least so it seems. Yeah. So we hope. Uh, hopefully humanity will one day come to realize a true unification. Uh, I mean, wouldn't it be ironic if it is our religions that ultimately do that? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, uh, I, one can only imagine, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and it, you, the audience, must decide if the evidence we have uh, really does suggest an extraterrestrial purpose to the making of the Moai on Easter Island 
So uh, for next episode, we're going to discuss the clandestine, shadowy, and mysterious society known as the Illuminati and the possible New World Order tied into it. Uh, we mentioned this a few times before and how there has always been aliens present on our planet, or if there has been always aliens present on our planet, that they could have an agenda. Yeah, so uh, uh, we'll touch uh, a little on that, or we touched a little on that uh, back in our Reptilians episode, which, by the way, is our number one download thus far. <laughs> so uh, you guys out there really like the Reptilians. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, but we also brought it up when uh, we talked about the Majestic 12 and the account of the biblical flood. So, you know, we look forward to, uh, to bringing that episode to you. Um, it should be a phenomenal one. Um, and, of course, we always seem to find, um, you know, what could be an alien connection in, in pretty much all of our topics. And we know that the mention of the New World Order can arouse sentiments that are both positive and negative, uh, depending on one's political positions and feelings about the government. Um, the same can be said about the mention of the Illuminati. However, as most of you know, we try to avoid so-called hot buttons on this podcast. Um, direction, the direction we take uh, with our discussions of the New World Order is not meant to be charged up with political topics and conspiracy theories. Instead, with us just simply asking the questions to the possibilities that might be true based on the evidence that is indeed available to us at this point in human history. Exactly. Uh, the idea of secret societies and secret governments may be a less uh, divisive one than it appears on the surface. And the truth of it may hold the, uh, the sheer destiny of the entire human race, if indeed there is an extraterrestrial agenda to it. Uh, I think a conversation about it will, will spur a renewed uh, desire in pursuing knowledge as, as well as a, a genuine interest in seeing uh, people everywhere becoming more, more united. Should be very enlightening. Looking forward to it. And we hope you all join us again next time right here on Alien Talk Podcast. Until then, folks, wherever you are, stay safe and always stay curious. Yeah, and thank you all again for listening in today and for uh, showing your support of the show. Uh, please check us out on Facebook and Patreon. And please feel free to send us any suggestions to like for us to uh, further explore here on the show so uh, we look forward to hearing from you guys and uh, we would love to, uh, uh, to to talk about things that you guys are interested in so take care everyone <laughs>